Father, I thank you for this group of people, Father. I thank you for the love and the family and the community that we have here. I thank you also for the desire to seek your face, the desire to seek your kingdom, the desire to be led by your Holy Spirit, and the desire to be your people, um, to serve you, and to listen to your voice and follow your direction in our lives. And God, I pray today that as we as we continue to dig into your word, um, Lord, that your spirit would be among us. Let your word come alive to us today. Um, this, this word that we've heard out of Paul's letter to the Corinthians about, about knowing you and preaching you crucified in all that we do and in knowing your spirit and, and, and listening to your spirit, the spirit that has wisdom and that searches your deep things and makes them known to us, Father. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that as we dig into this word that you will give me the gift of preaching, Father, that I may be able to do justice to your word today um, and, that, and that it will fall on open ears and open hearts, Lord, that your word will come alive and bring a harvest. In your name, amen. So today, um, as I was writing this, I was thinking uh, as we're all kind of turning our attention to Rio de Janeiro and we're looking at the Summer Olympics of this year and and. I've always enjoyed watching the Olympics. I've always enjoyed watching the, the uh, competition, um, the excellent stories about the successes of the athletes, not just in competition, but in the story of how they get to the Olympics. They're, it's always full of, of great stories and always, of course, ripe for uh, sermon illustrations, which is also something I'm really glad about. Um, <laughs> and here's one of them. No, uh, but actually, one I am... I, I really enjoy watching the events, but one that I have not watched in previous years that I'm really looking forward to this year is rowing. And, and rowing, you're like, why? I, I read a book this past year that has totally changed my perspective on rowing as a sport. It's called The Boys in the Boat. And if you haven't read it, it's a great book. It's a, it's, it is a true story of um, the University of Washington men's rowing team and their quest for gold at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And it's all these guys coming from like logging towns and like nowhere basically and, and, and coming together and actually challenging like the, the German rowing team in Berlin. And like, you know, it's got all the makings of like this really awesome, you know, come from behind amazing story. And the, and the best part is, is it's an actual true story. But as I learned about this story, I learned a lot about rowing and I, I learned just how demanding of a, of a sport rowing is. Not just physically demanding, but like so mentally demanding. Uh, and just how hard it is to do um, as a team, how hard it is to get into a rhythm like eight of you moving as one, working as one in the same rhythm, how difficult that kind of unity is, not just to find it, but to maintain it. And to maintain it through changes. And then also just how each team develops a different identity. They were talking about these ideas of, of, of regattas where, you know, sometimes you row against one team. It's just you and one other team. But then you get into these regattas where you've got like six or eight teams that are rowing at the same time in one race against each other. So you don't have to just prepare for one team. You have to prepare for all these different teams, all these different team identities, and you have to develop a strategy that, that takes into account all of these different identities, but still stays focused on we've got to stay in rhythm with one another. That's a lot to do. That's a lot to do mentally, 
much less pushing yourself to like your physical limitations to take these huge oars and like shoot this, you know, little shell of a boat through the water. And one of the things that I learned about is that basically to be able to do this, it is impossible without having a dedicated individual in the boat that their only goal is strategy. And that's why they've developed a, a, they developed a position very, very quickly in rowing called the coxswain. And the, this person, is they, they never lift an oar. Their whole goal is motivation, encouragement, and strategy. And they're the only person that is positioned so that they can actually see the field. If you think about it, in order to row the boat, in order to pull the oars, you're moving behind you. You can't see what's going on. So you can't see where you are on the field. You can't do any of that. And if, you're, if your attention is divided between rowing and then trying to figure out, looking over your shoulder or whatever, figuring out where you are on the field, you're going to lose that momentum. You're going to lose that rhythm. You're going to lose that unity very, very quickly. And so you need a dedicated person that's there. And the only thing that they do is they, they see the position on the field and they are the focal point for the rest of the crew. They are the person that hammers out the stroke, that yells out the stroke, that keeps you in rhythm. You know, that when you need that extra push, says, give me 10 more big ones on the right, give me 10 more big ones on the left to adjust course. You know, pull hard, pull faster, and keeps the rhythm going so that you can effectively not only go against your challengers, but you can also stay in rhythm. And I thought, what a great example of who the Holy Spirit is in our lives. We do not have a position all the time where we can see our way down the field to know what's coming up or to know where we are in those things that would be in competition with our lives or competition in the world around us for the gospel. We can't know that. If we spend all of our time trying to know that, we often find ourselves falling, we actually find ourselves falling out of unity with God and with one another. And so what will we do? We need someone who both can see the field and one who can be our focal point to keep us in rhythm with one another and in the right direction. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. And so as we look in Acts 17 and 18 at, at a multitude of different situations that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke find themselves in, in multiple different places with multiple different things going on, one of the threads that I see running through all of it is is that if they do not keep their eyes fixed on what the Holy Spirit is doing, it is very difficult to tell in all of these situations whether they are actually hitting the goal or not, whether this is actually success or failure, whether God is actually being glorified or not, because Luke just kind of tells it like it is. He just says, here's what's happening, here's what goes on, and then they move on to the next place. And it's kind of hard to know, like, okay, so... So was this a success or was this not? Let me show you what I mean. So we pick up, Paul is leaving Philippi with, you know, with his little entourage of the four guys and you know, assorted people. And they say goodbye to Lydia and they say goodbye to all of the people that are in um, Philippi and they move on to the town of Thessalonica. Now remember, this whole journey, they were planning on going somewhere completely different. They were planning on going over into Turkey and God has basically rerouted them by the Holy Spirit 
over to a completely different continent, a completely different country, and a completely different direction. He said, no, I want you to go to Greece. I want you to go to northern Macedonia, and I want you to work through there. Different people, different culture. You're out of your element. You're out of your comfort. You are going to need to lean on me. So none of these stops were planned. It's more like, where is the Spirit leading us next? And so that's what they do. They, they start looking for, okay, where is God where is God leading us? And the next stop is Thessalonica. And I think it's important, like I said, to reflect and remind us about the original reason we even started preaching a series through Luke and Acts. It is to show us the image of what life lived in the Holy Spirit looks like in Jesus and his church. Let's not forget that as we're looking through this. The whole reason we started that is so that we can understand that. And the reason that we want to understand that is so that we can imitate it. And so that we can display that same image of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not merely becoming more familiar with Him, not merely knowing more about Him, or even just to have a more balanced theology about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Those are great things, but those are the starting point. The end point is how we display it, how we live it, how we apply it. What difference does it make in my life, in how I live? We need a confidence and we need a motivation to live in the same spirit as the Lord of our predecessors. And I imagine that's the same focus that sits behind Paul's words to the Corinthian church as he reflects on how he came to preach the gospel to them and the places that he stopped beforehand. As the group of four leave Philippi, they cross over into the town of Thessalonica, and, and it's a major port city, and it's got lots of different influences in it. And there's a sizable Jewish influence in the town as opposed to Philippi. So Paul kind of reverts back to what he's been doing, which is he goes, he goes to the synagogue first, and he preaches in the synagogue. He doesn't spend a lot of time there. It's only about three weeks debating, teaching, and he wins a fairly sizable group of converts including a wealthy Gentile whose name is Jason, okay? And he allows his estate to kind of become a home base for the fledgling church, much like Lydia did in Philippi, okay? And, and it looks really successful, but that success appears to be very, very short-lived. We've previously seen, like, opposition to the gospel by, by zealous Jewish groups, the way it happened in Pisidia and Antioch, where they, they come and, and, and they, they, they are enraged that someone would be saying these blasphemous things about God that are obviously not true. And so they react in a violent and forceful way. And, and that, that influence enough back there was alone to eventually get Paul stoned and left for dead outside the city and have to walk back in, right? If you remember, it's that same group. They follow him from town to town to town creating trouble until finally he gets left for dead and has to go back into the city and then kind of, you know, get his stuff and leave. Not exactly the way, you know, not exactly the way that you want to be conducting mission work. But that alone's a big enough problem. And then we've also seen the opposition from kind of the Roman state of affairs, the economics and the politics, okay? That's what happened to them in Philippi. They were on a ground against these people are advocating a way of life that is against Caesar. Oh, you know, as soon as you say that, you know, the non-Roman way of life, Rome doesn't like competitors. You can believe what you want to believe. 
you can pretty much do what you want to do in Rome, but don't tell me that there's another authority besides Rome. You start doing that, and now you're on the list fairly quickly, okay? And that, of course, we, we've already seen that. That immediately gets him thrown in jail and flogged and all of those kind of things. And then, of course, he kind of uses, you know, the whole state of Rome thing against him and says, you know, by the way, is it okay for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And everybody goes, oh, no. <laughs> and, they, and they, you know, try to kind of quietly shoo him out of town. And he says, no, I think we'll take a public escort. Thank you very much. And they bring him out of town that way. So, but... You see these two influences working separately. What happens if they decide to come together? Because that's exactly what happens in Thessalonica. Okay? This zealous group of, we'll, we'll call them Pharisaical, because that's, that's what they're working off of is the same teachings, okay? This zealous group of Pharisees kind of gets together with some of the people that are, you know, not so okay with what happened in Philippi, because word gets around, and they get together, and both of them get angry. And what happens is a riot. Okay, and it's, it, it'll happen more than once in Acts, but what happens is a riot. I, I talk about the word riot, and I think sometimes, has anybody ever been in one? Anybody ever been around one? I, I, I mean, you saw the one, I, did you see the ones in Vancouver? Okay, so you saw some pictures and you kind of went, what is that? Okay, sometimes I think we, we hear this word riot and we just kind of like gloss over it, okay? Let me give you a picture. Because I didn't, I didn't really understand this until I went to the Dominican Republic, okay? I took my first trip there, my summer between my second and third year of university. And that's where I got my first glimpse of what a riot might look like. I think I was in a mini riot. I think I was in like an almost not quite riot, okay? But basically, yeah, not quite, but close. Here, here's basically what happened. We had landed at the airport, and we were traveling from the major city down the coast to where we were going to be staying. And unbeknownst to us, See, here's the thing. The government owns large strips of land down the sides of the highways there. But most people don't own land. And so they kind of have to live wherever they can live. And so a lot of them cobble like little shack houses together to live in on the government land. And it's kind of this repetitive pattern where the government comes and says, look, you're on our land, you need to get off our land. And they say, hey, we don't have anywhere else to go. And so then they say, if you don't get off our land, we are going to come bulldoze your houses down. Guess what day the government decided to come bulldoze all the houses down? The day that we landed. So there's this big stretch of, the, of, of like one of the main roads, one of the only main roads between where we're coming from and where we're going to, to where... Hundreds of people have had their houses just like bulldozed down that day. And what is left to do when you have nothing and what, you've had, what, you have, what little you had has now been bulldozed to the ground? What are you going to do? In this case, it was we're going to drink the local rum and we're going to get angry. So we get into a little town and all of a sudden we realize that like we have to stop the truck because there are, it is, it is nighttime, it is, it is dark already, and there are just a bajillion people clogging the streets outside of this town. 
and we're kind of going, uh-oh, what's going on? And so we're kind of creeping in the truck through the people, and you can hear shouts, and you can hear grumbling, but you don't really know what it's about. And then somebody realizes that, you know, we get to the other side of, the, we get to the other side of this group of people, and there's telephone poles blocking the roads. They've, they've knocked down these you know, big power poles and they're blocking the roads. They've put stacks of tires up and they're blocking the roads. And then somebody realizes that there are white people in the truck and that's when the first rock hits the truck. And our local guy is like, I want you to put your head between your knees. And I'm like, okay, you didn't need, need, you didn't need to tell me that. I'm already doing it, okay? And we know that there is, you know, things are being lit on fire now, and we're kind of like, it's, we back, we put the truck in reverse, and we back slowly back out of it. And as soon as we can, we turn around, we head the other way, and we spent a couple of days looking for an alternate route to get to where we were. Like I said, I don't even think that was a real riot. I think that was like a, a mini beginning of. But I want you to imagine having heard the good news of Jesus for just a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, all that group of people shows up at your house, drags you out of your house, drags you to the center of town, and says, these people, these people don't deserve to live. And it's not this nice orderly like we're going to bring you before the magistrate. I mean, it is shouting and it is dragging and it is scary. It would be hard for me to think of this being the success of the gospel. Because, I mean, this one didn't even have any, the, the, the thing that I was in, it didn't even have anything to do with me. And I was scared. I mean, my first thought was, I'm gonna die. My second thought was, I'm really disappointed because I was really looking forward to doing some gospel work here, and if I don't die, the group we work with is probably going to put me on a plane tomorrow and send me away, and I'm not going to get to do anything. Fortunately, we didn't. But I imagine it would have been hard to see Thessalonica as a success when you have to sneak out of town after a mob has stormed the house church when you weren't there and beat up your new believers and thrown them in prison. And the government makes makes them pay a hefty fine just to go free. And yet you look at the letters that Paul writes later on, and this congregation becomes so strong, and he has such a deep affection for them because they have had the faith to connect their suffering there to the path that the crucified Christ has taken. And his victory is now their victory because they live in the wisdom and the power of the same Holy Spirit. This is, I think, in fact, the critical way that the good news of Jesus is able to overcome the, zealous, the zealotry of religious morality in any day and the, and the power consolidation of the empire in any day, not just back then, but today and all of the time, by moving in the opposite direction of either of them, the direction of the cross of Jesus. I think that's the only way that we can find success in the midst of suffering as we move in the cross of Jesus. And you know what the, the interesting thing is? Is when we're willing to do that, the gospel grows. The gospel grows. 
It is not stifled by the anger of people who will not understand, or it is not stifled by the anger of people who, who, who want to see it die. Instead, it flourishes and it grows because it moves into the sacrificial love of the one who began it. And I think for us in a world where false life gets cobbled together through consolidating and hanging on to my own sense of control or power, real life still comes through releasing myself to the unmatched power of God's Holy Spirit in the same way that Jesus did. Even if the side effect is discomfort, even if the side effect is suffering, you can't count that as loss because Jesus doesn't seem to count that as loss either. And how do we deal with the idea that we are sometimes being guided by the Holy Spirit through things that look like great difficulty, even failure? And yet Thessalonica is an example of a church that looks like it shouldn't be standing, much less thriving. And yet when Paul writes them, they are thriving and he has deep affection for them. In fact, they are so excited that sometimes they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves and he kind of has to reel them back in and be like, oh, okay, hang on, hang on, okay? Don't get worried. God hasn't come and left you out. You're doing fine. You're doing great, okay? Resurrection is just around the corner. It's okay. You didn't miss it. But if you look at all of his letter, if you look at both of Paul's letters to Thessalonica, it's a church that is so in love with Christ and so ready to share in his suffering. And what looks like a failure is a success. And then you flip things. Because if you go to Athens, it looks like the complete opposite. It looks like Paul gets the chance of a lifetime. It looks like he gets the... He, I don't even know what it would be like, okay? But, but I imagine it's something like if, uh, if Daniel were to go to New York City and be playing your guitar on the street corner and all of a sudden somebody asks you to go play a packed house at Radio City Music Hall. Okay, that, I, that may be, that might be. Or, or, you know, somebody, you know, comes to me and says, hey, we've heard you talking about, you know, social issues and what God wants us to do. I'd really like you to come speak before the, the like the UN Secretary General, like a, a general, you know, um, general uh, congregation of the United Nations. Can you come do that for us? Okay, you know, I, that, that would probably be my response. And I think that, you know, that's kind of what gets put before Paul in Athens, is you have these two groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, who are completely, like, diametrically opposed to each other, by the way. Okay? I mean, crash course, Epicureans, God is very, very far away from us, or the gods, or spiritual stuff, or whatever it is. So far away from us, doesn't even matter. So basically, just live your life, live a quiet life, live a happy life, and just, just don't tick them off, and you'll be fine. Stoics, God is so, so present that you better be so super careful about how you live because if you do one thing wrong, it's all over for you. Okay, so when we think of an Epicurean, we think of, you know, kind of the eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die kind of thing. When we think of a Stoic philosopher, we think of like asceticism, okay? Like, you know, Everything needs to be watched. Everything needs to be taken care of because if you miss and you mess up, you're in deep trouble. So it's like rowing against two completely different teams, isn't it? 
how, how am I going to bring the truth of the gospel to both of these people on what is probably the world's biggest philosophical stage, the Areopagus, Mars Hill. It is the place where ideas are discussed. How am I going to do that? Looks like a great opportunity for success. I don't know that it is or not. Again, it's hard to tell unless you're looking through the eyes of the Spirit. Paul delivers a message that I think is, I mean, I have people that are a lot smarter than me. I have people that are a a lot more well-read into this than me that say this is probably the best Greek in the New Testament, okay? Like, it is polished. The meter is amazing. The logic is great. Obviously, it's condensed because Paul would not spend a place where you can spend an entire day talking on one topic. He would not condense it into like four and a half minutes of reading slowly, okay? But, But like, his speech and Luke kind of compacting it, I mean, it is, it, is, it is the best sermon ever, okay? And he's doing all the right things, and he's saying all the right things, and he's piquing their interest while at the same, you know, he's saying things that they would both agree with and challenging both of them at the same time. He's playing both sides just perfectly, and then he just goes, uh, and just runs it aground on the resurrection, that's what it looks like. And, and the response looks like that too because like as soon as everybody hears the resurrection of the dead, they go, huh. I think it's important to realize that for the people that are listening to Paul, it's not just that the idea of the bodily resurrection is old-fashioned or superstitious. It actually goes against the founding principles of Mars Hill. Listen to this. N.T. Wright quotes the 5th century poet Aeschylus, who recounts the mythical story of the god Apollo founding the court of the Areopagus, founding the entire reason why they all sit around and talk about things to help us understand how out of place the resurrection must have sounded. In his inauguration speech, the Greek god flatly states this, when a man dies, his blood is spilled upon the ground and there is nothing left, there is no resurrection for him. Paul's not, Paul's not just introducing an old-fashioned or superstitious idea here. What logic and philosophy flatly rules out, Paul is trying to firmly reinsert back into their worldview. That's tough. It's not going to be accepted very well. That this unknown God, he's not only known, he has a plan for resurrecting and rejuvenating the world, and the resurrection of Jesus is the fulcrum on which that whole plan is turning and moving to completion. It's an idea that's so counterintuitive that most of them just call it foolishness. A few are intrigued enough to ask for fewer discussion. Even fewer are willing to pursue it to belief. We don't hear about a thriving church in Athens that Paul is connected to. Does this mean it's a wildly successful opportunity that just turns into failure? I don't know. Maybe. But it's not rejected because there's compelling evidence to the contrary. It's just rejected because it makes those who would live by rationale alone or who would live by self-indulgence alone extremely uncomfortable. Uncomfortable to the point where they would rather just dismiss it as foolishness rather than actually engage that there might be another way of doing life. And we're going to run into that. You and I will run into that. 
we will consistently run into people who are so grounded in ration and reason. And we will run into people that are so grounded in self-indulgence and the gods are far away and if I just live my quiet life, everything will be okay. That to speak of a resurrection of my heart and my soul and your heart and your soul in this world and a God who's intimately connected with them and expects that we will listen and follow his lead through his spirit is just ridiculous. And that's not failure. It is not failure to be dismissed by the world. The failure would be as if we didn't stand up and speak. The failure would be if we did not follow the leading of the Spirit to know Christ and to know Christ crucified and to know Christ raised and to speak Christ crucified and to speak Christ raised even when it will be dismissed as foolishness. And it would be worse to dismiss those people as foolish and not worthy of the words of the gospel because I see a lot of that too. I see a lot of writing people off that are intellectuals. We, we, have, we have the new intellectual movement, we have the rational atheists, and we just say like, you know what, they're just not even worthy of the gospel, man. I'm just not even going to waste my time. You know, we get angry and we get mad at the Richard Dawkins of the world. Why should we do that? That's not what the cross of Christ does. The cross of Christ sacrifices ourselves for those people. We look, at, we look at people that are living self-indulgent lives and we say they're just too far gone, man. They're just, they're, just, they're just beyond. That's not what the cross of Christ does. The cross of Christ moves in to love those people and moves in to engage those people and moves in to care about those people. It doesn't write them off. I've never seen the cross of Christ write anybody off. Show me. In the, show me. Even in Corinth where Paul kind of like you know, kind of, he, he just kind of finally just, you know, shakes his robes in protest. I don't even know what that looks like, but I assume it's kind of like, I assume it's kind of like flapping your arms and just going like, I'm done with this, right? He's not writing them off because they're not worthy of the gospel. He's going like, fine, you've written yourselves off. You continue to proclaim that the gospel is not worthy of you, and I can't change that. But he doesn't write off the Jewish people there, and he doesn't write off the Jewish nation. And he doesn't write off anybody because they're not worthy of the gospel. And we need to be very, very, very careful about our attitudes in that arena, especially toward the people that are resistant or who would call the gospel foolishness. Do we just write them off? Or do, we, or do we listen to the words of, I mean, because his next stop is in Corinth, okay, which is not much better. Doesn't look much better, especially coming from Athens. You, you'd think, like, if anybody would be able to understand the deep things of God, it'd be the philosophers in Athens, not the sailors in Corinth. And yet Paul stays there for a year because he hears God saying, don't forget my spirit is in charge. I have people here who are ready to hear the gospel, so listen and speak with confidence. Keep your eyes fixed on my spirit because my spirit knows the direction and my spirit knows the way and my spirit knows how to stay in rhythm. You focus on him. 
What does walking deeply in the Holy Spirit look like? I think, I think that's the common thread through all of these places and all of these stories. Again, it's why we started this series was to talk about what does walking deeply in the Spirit look like? It means adopting a life shaped around the crucified Jesus. Because that is where the deep wisdom of the Spirit for living comes from. Not a wisdom that's neat or a novel idea. Not a wisdom that's detached morality or legalism. Not a wisdom that brings control or success as you and I might want to understand it on a superficial human level. I'm talking about the Spirit that Paul speaks of. The Spirit that is able to search the deep things of God and to grow them in you and I so that we can see them revealed in our lives. It is this wisdom of the Spirit that shows off the crucified majesty of Jesus, that Jesus suspended our ideas of success or failure or wisdom or foolishness and placed them all in the context of sacrificial love. He ignored the apparent success of Palm Sunday he dismissed it as fake, and then he embraced what appears to be the lowest point of human history and made that the turning point of the history of our salvation, the cross. Palm Sunday makes sense to me. Coming into shouts of Hosanna, that makes sense to me. That looks like success. Jesus says no. The cross, it looks like failure to me, but Jesus says no. No, 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 no. That's actually the point where your salvation begins. And not just the salvation that saves your soul, but the salvation that changes your life starts there. That is the deep thing that the Spirit is revealing to you and I daily. And so I think the challenge for us as we move is is just simply this. How will we embrace life in the shape of the cross as a result of this Holy Spirit that is leading us? How will we fix our eyes on Him? It is easy to get caught up in is the church doing okay or not? Are we going to survive the 21st century or not? How are we going to stand up against this or that competitor to the gospel? And, and, and when has Jesus ever been concerned about whether His church will survive or not? I just don't see a lot of anxiety in Jesus about whether the church is going to survive or not. You know what, he, you know what his real critical concern seems to be? Will you allow my spirit to move you to bring my good news to the world around you? That's what he seems to be very, very concerned about. Fix your eyes on the one who knows the direction, who can see the field, who can keep you in rhythm. That is what it means to walk deeply in the Spirit. And we will just continue to see that all the way through the book of Acts as we, as, as we are moving through the mission of the gospel to fill the earth with God's glory. Who do you have your eyes fixed on today?